The assault on our nation's capital was grotesque, disgraceful. President Trump's involvement in the sad spectacle is not without responsibility or recrimination. It will serve as an indelible stain on his legacy. But should he be impeached with just days remaining in office, as Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have demanded? The answer is no. Trump's speech on January 6th was reckless, it was wrong, but it did not rise to the constitutional standard of an impeachable offense. Nowhere in his remarks did the president advocate violence or destruction of property. He did not incite an insurrection under the meaning of the law. So what's the point of impeachment, other than to heap further shame on a president who's already committed a stunning act of political self-immolation? An old friend of mine recently reminded me, the left always overplays their hand. This is true, of course, yet the left is also guilty of complicity and rank hypocrisy. For months, they refused to condemn, indeed, they often encouraged the appalling violence that terrorized cities across America. Rioters vandalized, looted, burned, and destroyed government buildings and private businesses. Police were viciously attacked, while innocent people were beaten and murdered. Where was the outrage among Democrats and the mainstream media? Those who claim that our seat of government is somehow a more sacred place than all those cities under constant siege are wrong. Main Street America is just as important as our nation's capital. Both deserve protection and respect. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Jarrett, and welcome to The Brief. By now, you've all heard me talk about my pillow and how it's literally changed my life. I met Mike Lindell. He fit me for my very own my pillow, and I haven't stopped raving about it since then. They won't go flat. You can wash and dry them as many times as you want, and they maintain their shape. Made in the USA. If you don't have a MyPillow or know somebody who doesn't, now is the time, because there's a limited time that Mike is offering his premium MyPillows. Yes, the one that started it all for his lowest price ever. You can get a queen-size premium MyPillow, regularly $69.98, for only $29.98. That's a $40 savings. Kings are only $5 more. Buy now and Mike will extend his 60-day money-back guarantee to March 1st, 2021. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener's Square. There you'll find not only this amazing offer, but also deep discounts on all of the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets. Or call 800-605-8765 and use promo code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Donald Trump's failure to gracefully, if grudgingly, concede defeat in the presidential election, until it was too late, sowed the seeds of his own demise. 
His political epitaph will be defined by his instrumental role in inflaming passions among his legions of supporters at the National Mall on January 6, who then marched down Constitution Avenue and invaded the halls of Congress. Mayhem ensued. Five people died. Trump may not have intended that result, but history will judge otherwise. It's important to note that the vast majority of the demonstrators that day abided by the law. They behaved in a peaceful manner. Tragically, not all did. The actions of a few sullied the whole. Some protesters, too many of them to be sure, breached the astonishingly weak security, entered the Capitol building, commandeered the Senate chamber, smashed windows and doors, looted and vandalized federal property, threatened lawmakers, and assaulted police officers. In other words, they did exactly what thousands of rioters did on an almost daily basis in Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, New York City, Chicago, and dozens of other cities across America in 2020 during what became known as the Summer of Rage. All of it was despicable. How did most politicians respond in these Democrat-controlled cities? They hailed the criminals and cheered them on. At the same time, they demonized law enforcement. When elected officials were not busy declaring that police should be defunded, they were actually ordering them to stand down. Rioting continued, unabated, and even escalated. So did the destruction and the bloodshed, much of it at the hands of Antifa and masked elements from Black Lives Matter. Shootings and murders skyrocketed. Statues of Washington, Lincoln, Grant, and others were toppled. So what was the reaction of liberal leaders like Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler? I don't care that much about statues. Respectfully, shouldn't that be done by a commission or the city council, not a mob in the middle of the night throwing it into the harbor? People will do what they do. It is true. There's violence across the whole country. Do you disavow the violence from Antifa? That's happening in Portland right now. There's riots. That's that's a myth that's being spread only in Washington D.C. About Antifa in Portland? Yes. Sir, there's there's videos everywhere online. There's fires and riots. They're throwing fireworks at uh, federal officers. DHS is there. Look online. It gets crazy, Mr. Nadler. It's too easy to dismiss Jerry Nadler as chronically obtuse. He is. And Nancy Pelosi is a left-wing extremist hypocrite. She most certainly is. But these are two of the most powerful elected officials in Washington. They set the tone and tenor for Democrats. They wield enormous influence. And so, too, will Kamala Harris as the new vice president. She and Joe Biden campaign staffers actually raised money to bail out the rioters. They refused to condemn the violence while it was happening. No one even denounced the rioting during the Democratic National Convention. Harris and Biden were mute. Only after a torrent of post-convention criticism did they finally relent and offer a tepid objection to all the violence. And what about the liberal media? Here's a sample of their odious comments. I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is a, mostly a protest. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not, generally speaking, unruly. 
That ain't a riot, what we're seeing right now in Minneapolis. They are strictly principled anti-fascists, and they've taken a principled stand to stand against white supremacists and white nationalists wherever they may show up. I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally. It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's... You know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. Any reasonable person would say we shouldn't be destroying other people's property. But these are not reasonable times. But thank goodness for the looters, man. Do not get it twisted and think that, oh, this is some something that has not never happened before. And then this is so terrible. And where are we and these savages and all of that? This is how this country was started. People get mad and people get sick of it. People are risking covid to explain to this country that we're fed up. Most of the major movements in American history have started at the grassroots level and at some point have turned into direct conflict with American government. So remember your history before you judge your present. Thuggishness is thuggishness wherever it comes from politically and and we should be the first to call it out. I disagree. (laughs) And please show me where it says that protests are supposed to be polite and peaceful. Chris Cuomo's advocacy on behalf of the violence was breathtaking. He argued that the criminals are not to blame, Americans are to blame for being racist and forcing rioters to commit violence. You got that? You are a bad person. You deserve to have your home burned down or your business looted. Then Cuomo asked, show me where it says protesters are supposed to be peaceful. Well, Chris, it's actually in the U.S. Constitution. Take a look at the First Amendment. It's so simple, even you could comprehend it. The amendment gives people the right to, quote, peaceably assemble. It doesn't say violently assemble or violently petition the government for a redress of grievances. No, it makes a purposeful point of protecting only peaceable assemblies of people. Chris Cuomo must have missed that one in law school. But Cuomo wasn't done flaunting his ignorance and misleading his sycophant viewers, not by a long shot. Unbelievably, Cuomo doubled down and announced that, quote, police are the ones required to be peaceful. Really? Cuomo said that. So let me get this straight, Chris. Are the guns that cops carry just for show? When facing an imminent threat of serious bodily injury or death, do cops fire blanks or, you know, start singing kumbaya? When a killer is on a murderous rampage, are cops supposed to call in a therapist or a social worker? If Chris Cuomo had his way, law enforcement would be nothing more than cardboard cutouts. Anarchy would reign supreme. And Chris wouldn't complain until they come after him and his family. Then he'd be begging for armed police. Against this backdrop, is it any wonder that some of the Trump supporters who rioted at the nation's capital may have thought, why not? It's okay. Everyone's doing it. And they get away with it. Chris Cuomo says it's all right. Nancy Pelosi says we will do what we do. After all, when the mainstream media and the Democratic leaders spend an entire summer turning a blind eye to rioting, arson, looting, and assaults and battery, and actually say it's okay, as many did, you begin to convince yourself that 
there are no real consequences to criminality. So you go ahead and you join in. You do the exact same thing. Now, this is the point made by Andy Ngo, a reporter who spent more time on the ground covering the Summer of Rage riots than just about any journalist. In addition to his daily reports on the front lines, he wrote a book about it. And here's what he said in a recent column, quote, The deadly storming of the Capitol building is the logical outcome of norms set by the left in 2020. By winking at and apologizing for Antifa, liberal elites telegraph that political grievances ought to be resolved through violence. Those showing righteous indignation now, only months or weeks ago, argued that the riots were mostly peaceful and that vandalism and looting don't count as violence. Andy's point is a valid one. If our leaders and the media elite pick and choose what kind of violence is acceptable and what kind is not, they are creating an environment of selective enforcement that only breeds confusion, chaos, and in the end, more violence. It's an ugly downward spiral because violence begets more violence. So what's the answer? Well, it's quite simple. We must always stop any and all acts of violence by strict and consistent law enforcement. It's never acceptable for aggrieved people to try to advance their political or social agendas through criminal acts, period. This applies to the left and to the right. Politicians and the media must stop indulging the mob. As Senator Tom Cotton correctly observed, indulging the mob emboldens the mob, and he's right. It leads to widespread lawlessness and mob rule. Law-abiding citizens become the mob's innocent victims. Is that the kind of dystopian society in which we all want to live? Of course not. Democrats in the liberal media are in desperate need of a self-reckoning. They need to look in the mirror and recognize that there's a shameless hypocrite staring back. A hypocrite who bears a significant measure of blame for the riots that have racked our nation. They should say to themselves that from now on, they will not coddle or excuse the behavior of rioters of any political or social ilk. They must admit to themselves that criminal conduct, irrespective of motivation, can no longer be condoned or tolerated. The rule of law, equally applied, must prevail. Stop ordering cops to back off. Stop telling them they have no authority to defend themselves or the citizenry. Stop defunding police. Stop dismissing charges or eliminating bail for purely political reasons. It's insane. If it persists, it will lead to a complete breakdown of civilized society. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not blaming Democrats and the radical media entirely. No. The Capitol rioters on January 6th are principally to blame for their own actions. They are nothing more than common criminals, all of them. They should be arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and imprisoned. Throw the damn book at them. But Donald Trump must shoulder some of the blame as well, not in a criminal sense, because in his speech, 
he did not advocate violence or rioting. However, in a moral sense, Trump is culpable. He spent weeks encouraging his supporters to attend the July 6th rally to stop the theft, as he called it. When they convened at the National Mall, he purposefully ginned up the already emotional crowd inflaming their passions with poisonous and unproven allegations that the presidency had been stolen from him ignoring that more than 50 state and federal courts had consistently rejected this claim under a variety of legal challenges. He extolled the gathering masses to march to the Capitol, where objections to the electoral count were being waged by Republicans, mimicking what Democrats did back in 2005. But for Donald Trump's incendiary, and reckless remarks, and his obstinate refusal to accept defeat, the rioting and the violence that ensued probably would not have happened. This is a shame that Trump will carry for the rest of his life. He will forever be remembered, not for the considerable accomplishments in a single term, but how he left office embittered by an ignominious obsession that he won the election in a landslide. Evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding, he will be remembered as a man with no grace at a pivotal moment in history that demanded it. Yes, there are serious questions about election integrity and voting improprieties. Those need to be addressed both by Congress and individual state legislatures. This must be done soon and to the full satisfaction of all Americans if they are to have any faith, any confidence in the representative democracy dependent on free and fair elections. But the kind of major fraud that would reverse the election outcome never materialized in the way that President Trump and his legal team promised, at least to the satisfaction of innumerable judges who considered a myriad of challenges. What Trump and his legal team failed to understand or appreciate is that there is a well-established system in place for contesting an election. It involves petitioning state election officials for canvases, recounts, and double-checking certifications. It also involves the use of state and federal courts, where evidence of impropriety, irregularities, and fraud can be presented and argued. Trump's lawyers availed themselves of every avenue of legal recourse, and they consistently lost. Absolutely, there were some well-documented instances of votes incorrectly counted, ballots without valid signatures, and tardy votes being counted, but there was nothing provable on the grand scale that Trump alleged. Allegations alone are not enough to overturn an election. The evidence submitted must be sufficiently reliable, compelling, pervasive, and persuasive to meet the legal standard of proof required in courts of law. Trump and his team didn't achieve this. Their challenges failed, all of them. Yet Trump would not relent. He seemed incapable of moving beyond the first two stages of grief, denial, and anger. 
he may never be able to reach the fifth stage of acceptance. Although he did acknowledge the day after the Capitol riots that a new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. But that concession seemed to be a product of the horrifying images of rioters and the cacophony of condemnation of Trump that followed. Trump has a week left in his presidency. Predictably, liberals are overplaying their hand, just as my old friend warned. They have obviously never heard of the Napoleon maxim, never interfere with an enemy when he's in the process of destroying himself. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Democrat leader Chuck Schumer and a host of other Democrats, egged on by the usual suspects in the media, are demanding that Trump be removed from office by invoking the 25th Amendment. Now, that is just plain stupid, not to mention unconstitutional. Not that Pelosi or Schumer would ever know that or even care. As I explained in a column a few days ago, the meaning and intent behind the crafting of that amendment was not to remove an unpopular or a failed president or for any political or vindictive purpose. No, the framers of the 25th Amendment envisioned a chief executive who was stricken by a debilitating stroke, heart attack, or bodily injury, and was physically disabled or mentally incapacitated to such an extent that he was unable to carry out the functions of his office. Thus, concerns about character, those are dramatically different than mental incapacity. The 25th Amendment has no application to the circumstances that unfolded on July 6th. Vice President Mike Pence and the President's Cabinet immediately dismissed that silly idea. But undeterred Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have shifted to their backup plan, impeach Donald Trump all over again. It's been their favorite mantra since Trump won his unexpected victory in 2016. Every action taken by Trump was an impeachable offense, they howled. Anchors and pundits on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks continuously assured us month after month, year after year, that Trump was finished. He'll be impeached and removed from office, they claimed. You can take it to the bank. So here we are with just days left in Trump's tenure and Democrats are at it again. They're like a rabid dog that won't let go of the bull's tail. Impeachment is a ludicrous idea for several reasons. First of all, Trump did not incite violence or an insurrection as Democrats assert. Again, as I pointed out in my recent column, Nowhere in the president's remarks did he advocate acts of violence or destruction of property. He did not direct the protesters to launch an assault on the Capitol building, breach security, riot, and engage in seditious conduct. Just the opposite. Trump called on them to be peaceful. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and Patriotically, make your voices heard. Under the law, encouraging a public demonstration of grievances is not at all the same thing as inciting criminal acts, which would be 
an impeachable offense. For the latter to attach, the language of the speaker must be clear, obvious, and unequivocal. Second, compare Trump's speech to the remarks of, well, Democrats like Maxine Waters, who actually called on people to confront and harass and get into the face of any and all members of the Trump administration anytime, any place. You cannot be civil with a political party that wants to destroy what you stand for, what you care about. They go low, we kick them. You're in the arena, you got to be ready to take a punch. You got to be ready to throw a punch for the children. Go to the hill today. Get up and please get up in the face of some Congress people. I don't think uh, even in states where Donald Trump won big that it does you any good running away from Donald Trump. I think you need to go back and, and punch him in the face. You see anybody from that cabinet in a restaurant, in a department store, at a gasoline station, you get out and you create a crowd and you push back on them and you tell them they're not welcome. Incited by these very remarks, some Republicans were heckled, harassed, so intimidated by in-your-face lunatics that they were forced to flee public places like restaurants. Now, fortunately, nobody was injured. But was Maxine Waters censured or removed from office? No. Her Democrat colleagues and the liberal media applauded her. Law professor Jonathan Turley, a well-recognized expert on the U.S. Constitution and impeachment, has also made the point that Trump's speech on January 6th was protected political free speech and not, I repeat, not an impeachable offense. The very concept of what's been called a snap impeachment is a contradiction in constitutional terms. This is designed to be a deliberative, not an impulsive act of Congress. The framers made it very difficult. And what is being suggested now is a virtual snap vote on the floor of the House <laughs> of Representatives on an issue that really does need to be deliberated. You know, if they're going to accuse the President of the United States of insurrection or a conspiracy uh, for insurrection, then they need to look very closely at the evidentiary basis for that action. This speech itself does not give a clear basis for the charges of insurrection or incitement. I was critical of the speech. While it was going on, I was critical of the speech. I opposed uh, the challenge in Congress from the outset. But in the speech, the president talks about his followers marching on Congress peacefully, uh, is one reference that he made. Uh, he does not call for riots. He does not call for violence. Does that mean that the speech was not reckless? No, I think it was reckless, um, as I said, when the speech was being given. But speeches of encouraging people to go to state and federal capitals to protest what's going on inside um, happen all the time. I mean, they, they happen, they've happened the last four years for both the left and the right. That's not an invitation to riot. Also, the challenge itself has been made by Democrats in the past. The president, in his speech, was saying, go to the Congress to get these Republicans to support us in the challenge. I didn't support the challenge, but there's, that's political speech. It would, in fact, be protected 
under Supreme Court precedent and the First Amendment. So are you actually going to impeach a president for speech that the Supreme Court would likely find protected under the First Amendment? Professor Turley's well-reasoned argument that Trump's words do not constitute an impeachable offense will invariably fall on deaf ears of Democrats. Forget the fact that removal under impeachment is a literal impossibility at this late juncture. Sure, Democrats in the House could vote on a snap impeachment, as Turley noted, without the usual committee hearings, presentation of evidence, and completely denying Donald Trump the right of counsel or even a defense. A kangaroo court would be fairer. But conviction in the U.S. Senate, and therefore actual removal from office, is not remotely possible before Joe Biden is sworn in as the new president. Take a look at the Senate rules. Under those rules, the earliest that an impeachment trial could begin is one hour after the inauguration. Could an impeachment trial proceed when Trump leaves office? Well, arguably, it could. But to what end? It would be a pointless exercise at a time when Congress should be working diligently, 24-7, to end the pandemic and help Americans restore their lives and livelihoods that have been obliterated by needless lockdowns and heartless shutdowns, none of which were based on science or data. Democrats do recognize this, but they counter that convicting Trump in the Senate even after he leaves office would achieve a political benefit. Under the Constitution, Article 1, Section 3, it would effectively bar Trump from running for office four years from now. But really, what are the chances that Trump could ever get elected to anything again? In the wake of the horrifying events of January 6th, the age of Trump has run its course and reached a notorious and humiliating end. He could teach a master class in self-destruction. But logic, reason, fairness, and the Constitution itself will not be enough to stop the Pelosi-Schumer train wreck impeachment gambit. They don't care about upholding impeachment standards. They don't care about bastardizing a constitutional process that will, in the end, do great damage to future presidents. No, they want their pound of flesh out of Donald Trump, and nothing will stop them. Their previous efforts to destroy Trump and drive him from office ended in failure. Trump-Russia collusion? It proved to be a hoax. The first impeachment was a predictable bust. And so the demonization of Donald Trump will continue even after he leaves office. As I look back on the tragic events of January 6th, I find it mind-boggling that it ever occurred. It made no sense. Everybody in Washington knew well in advance that more than 100,000 Trump supporters would converge on the nation's capital, and many people feared that some of these protesters, a few of them, that's all that's needed, might become so unruly that lawlessness could erupt. In fact, some residents of Washington actually stayed home to avoid the anticipated violence. Yet the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police Department were utterly clueless. 
They were totally unprepared and undermanned. This level of law enforcement incompetence was shocking as demonstrators breached security in a matter of minutes and took over the Capitol building. Heads have already rolled with more to come, but never again should our nation's seat of government be so cavalierly abandoned. If police had done their jobs properly, if a solid perimeter had been set up and unscalable fences been erected, with a presence of armed force capable of deterring any attack, the demonstrators would have been sequestered outside where they belonged, and Congress would have fulfilled its constitutional duty uninterrupted by counting the electoral votes in Joe Biden's favor. This brings up another point that has left me scratching my head in disbelief. President Trump, Senators Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, and a host of other Republicans in both houses of Congress deliberately misled their supporters into believing that Vice President Mike Pence and Republicans in Congress had the constitutional power to reverse the election results on January 6th. This is absolutely untrue to the point of being laughable. It is not how the Constitution reads, nor is it how the Electoral Count Act of 1887 was written, not by a long shot. I invite you to read them. To put it simply, unless there is an electoral tie, Congress has no choice whatsoever but to simply tally the votes. To put it simply, unless there is an electoral tie, Congress has no choice whatsoever but to simply tally the electoral votes, which were decidedly in favor of Joe Biden. This is nothing more than a ministerial act. Cruz, Hawley, and others had no legitimate legal basis to level their objections. Perhaps they did it because Democrats launched the same idiotic failed maneuver back in 2005. But that's no excuse. They knew it would fail now, as it did back then. It was an insane exercise in futility, but their contorted interpretation of the Constitution gave Trump supporters false hope. They peddled a fantastic fable that then triggered a violent riot in the nation's capital, a convulsion of violence that will live in infamy and shame. Once he's sworn in as president, Joe Biden has a rare opportunity to heal the wounds of this dreadful chapter in American history. It should not be squandered. As a candidate, Joe Biden repeatedly vowed to unite instead of divide. But judging by his recent incendiary remarks, the new president seems poised to embrace the same old fractious rhetoric that he promised to renounce. If he truly wants to unite the country, Biden should tell Pelosi and Schumer to knock off the absurd impeachment movement. If he truly wants to be a president for all the people, as he insists, he must stop alienating and vilifying the 74 million-plus Americans who voted for Donald Trump. But Biden won't do that. I guarantee it. He announced that he would not intervene to stop 
the impeachment train. This is the politics of anger and revenge. And Joe Biden is happily on board because bad habits are hard to break. Indeed, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have turned hatred and vengeance into an art form. They'll soon be fully in charge of Congress. And their first order of business? To force Joe Biden to capitulate. Is Biden too weak or too compromised to stand on his own convictions? That assumes he has convictions. I'm not optimistic that Biden has the intellect, the temperament, or the courage to be even a half-decent president. And so, the future looks bleak. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening.